This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to talk to uh, political scientist, public intellectual, and master teacher Sam Abrams. Uh, Sam has been on our podcast before. He's doing some of the most important and I think rigorous research on uh, changing American views of our society, and in particular, on the evidence, the hopeful evidence of an emerging American consensus. Sam uh, teaches at Sarah Lawrence Lawrence College, and he's also a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, He uh, published a recent piece in The Dispatch, which we have linked to our uh, website, and uh, he's coming to us right now from Virginia. Uh, Sam, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we turn to uh, Sam's groundbreaking research, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? Noticing Each Other. Let's hear it. Noticing Each Other. There was a colony in the dark rolling hills among the tobacco lowlands and the formidable oaks and the New England cottages and Baltimore docks, and there was a colony that became a country. There was a country of lies, of rolling pastures, of cornfields and bankers and cold streams, a country of plantations of brutalized slaves, and there was a lie that became more of a truism. There was a nation of fanatic segregation of universities and libraries and great transatlantic jets, a nation of prejudice and backward simplicity, and there was prejudice that turned into justice. There was a land of frenzied terror, of computer chips and highways and cell phone towers, a land suffering under its own fear like a body in the face of its own immune system, and there was terror that turned into hope. Each generation there has been a different America, and progress has come always with regret, and hope has come always with hate, and each time there has been a divide more spoken of than actualized. Each generation there has been a new consensus, a new remembering of the remembrances, a new reckoning with the reckonings. And each time a new generation unscrewed its own training wheels and the old ones slowly died. There was a colony, and there was a country of lies, and there was a nation of prejudice, and there was a land of frenzied terror, and now there is a land of restless behemoths beginning to notice each other. I love all the historical references, Zachary. What is your poem really about? My poem is really about the uh, contradictions in American history and how uh, progress and generational consensus are not linear, but they're very much go back and forth and how each generation forges a new image of America and of American values. Sam, is is it correct to say that that your research shows that a new image of America in Zachary's terms is, is coming into view? Uh, it is. That was a phenomenal poem. I uh, am blown away every time I hear your poem, Zachary. I, I don't know how you do it. I don't know where that well of creativity comes from. And uh, it's very impressive. I'm smiling here if you could see me. <laughs> and um, I'm thrilled you actually said that. Uh, because one thing that uh, happened that is of incredible significance uh, just two days ago in the United States, and this came out from Pew, uh, Pew you know, spends a, a lot of time, effort, and uh, money to study uh, the pulse of the United States and the, the pulse of the globe more generally. Uh, and two days ago, they actually released uh, a report showing that uh, millennials are now uh, the largest generation in the United States uh, in terms of just raw population size. And uh, this is a very important uh, change 
yet uh, it really went unnoticed, uh, largely because of the pandemic and the negativity in our press and, and Twitter. But to your point, you know, of, of generational replacement and then generations shaping uh, the, the country and the, the nature of the country, uh, millennials are now the largest group. We knew this was coming. This has been something we've been uh, observing now for quite a while, but it actually just happened. And uh, hopefully that will uh, spell good news, I think, for uh, our country's future and how we think about uh, policy and bringing the country together again. I, I've been saying this for a long time and, and looking at these same numbers that, that millennials are different. How do you find them different from the, the, the baby boomers who have largely um, governed our country for, for quite some time? What differences do you see, Sam? Oh, they're, they're, they're quite significant. Uh, one of which is, and, and I'm going <laughs> to probably not make a lot of friends here, uh, <laughs> but uh, baby boomers, uh, especially uh, ones who are on tenure committees, although I'm, I'm happily tenured, is that um, baby boomers tend to be uh, a little more selfish. Uh, they grew up in a world of materialism. They grew up in a world of traditional ladders. Uh, they grew up in a world of uh, quite a bit of division and, and groups and uh, inwardness, if you will, uh, largely in, in response to what happened after World War II. Uh, millennials, and I, I also want to throw in Gen Z. Uh, there are a lot of similarities between these two groups, but they are very separate. Gen Z are my current students. Uh, millennials are my first batch of students about a decade ago, and there are some differences. But millennials are much more open. Uh, they are much more tolerant. They are less materialistic. This is the group that uh, when you watch travel or, or read a travel website, they often say, you know, people now are interested in experiences, not things. Uh, that, that sums up millennials. Uh, the idea of ownership is a little different. The idea of community and relationships, marriage, and, and what, val what they value, uh, again, which is uh, much more community than, than older groups. Uh, that's a, a huge, significant change. Uh, and this should uh, impact uh, eventually how we govern, how we think about uh, inequalities, how we think about distribution of resources. Uh, one of the big issues uh, that I note to my students regularly though, is that we don't see that many millennials uh, on the stage nationally. Uh, it, it frustrates my millennial students and my Gen Z students. When you look at the Democrats, for instance, right. uh, where were they? I mean, we looked at uh, older boomers at this point. Uh, there weren't even uh, angry Gen Xers uh, all that much on the stage. And, uh, you know, in an era where we're calling for more representation, especially on the left, uh, you know, the Democrats are going to end up or did end up with a choice of uh, basically two older gentlemen uh, and, and one, uh, in, in the case of Biden, and one. don't want to criticize Biden on a personal level, but from a generational perspective, this is the wrong direction to be heading. And it's uh, pretty interesting to see that millennials' voice has been drowned out. I think it's uh, time for that to change. And and do you see evidence that that is changing? Because you've pointed to a lot of the evidence that despite these demographic shifts, power still remains largely in the hands of, of an older generation. Yes. Um, <laughs> I wish you hadn't asked me that. The shift is not there as, as strongly. Um, I don't, uh, you know, we, we don't really see it yet. This younger group is a little bit more apathetic to politics. They've been uh, disengaged for so long. It, it's going to take an event. Uh, an exogenous event of some sort to really trigger and, and fire this group up. Uh, perhaps COVID-19 will do that. Um, I don't know if it's doing that right now. We're, we're in the progress of trying to figure this all out. We have studies in the field. Uh, a lot of people are trying to make sense of what's going on. Uh, we at AI are certainly going to be doing all of that. 
but uh, no, as of now, uh, the the older generation here, the boomers have been in power, and they've been in power a very long time uh, politically. And you know, it we have not seen a younger generation really speak up. Uh, pre you know pre boomer, we had a group called the Silent Generation, but uh, I think we have another Silent Generation coming up, and that's the uh, Gen Xers, my generation, folks who are in their forties, grew up in the nineteen eighties. Uh, because, uh, you know, we're just nowhere. You never hear anything about us. I'm okay with that, but it's time for the millennials to sort of step up. Well, I, I like millennials so much. I, I like to consider myself an honorary millennial, even though I'm a Gen Xer, just like you. Sam. <laughs> oh, I point out that, you know, there's a very close line for, for, for you and me that way. Uh, but I remember, you know, a clear division is I, I headed off to college. I was on the East coast, went to college on the West coast. With a tower of 200 CDs, I bought a boombox. I didn't have a cell phone and had to buy a clunky uh, desktop. By the time uh, I graduated, I had a flip phone. We had MP3s and Napster, and I had a, uh, a laptop. So things do change, and, and that, that really is a significant change for a lot of people. You're describing my world. It's absolutely, exactly. absolutely right. Um, Sam, what are the different views you see coming together now? Your recent research, especially this wonderful new piece in, in the Dispatch, really does point to some evidence of, of an emerging consensus, maybe even across generations a little bit. What do you see there? So uh, in the piece in the Dispatch, I, I, I thank you for saying that. And I, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. I, I actually just wrapped up another piece that'll hopefully be out in a day or two that extends it even more. Uh, let me mention that new work, and then I'll, I'll mention the dispatch piece. Uh, the upcoming piece is actually about uh, regionalism and geography. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've noticed is, uh, as people have called for opening things back up, ending certain quarantines, uh, renormalizing certain things uh, in the economy, allowing certain congregations to occur. I don't mean religious, but just you know, allowing people to go to restaurants or other venues if there's social distancing, is that, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker and uh, New York was hit very, very hard. Uh, I am now in Virginia. Uh, and Virginia was not hit nearly as hard. Uh, so people talk about regional variants and we've long heard about regional differences. Oh, well, New England's very different from the left coast, if you will, Washington and Oregon and uh, California. Uh, I just did some empirical work on that. And uh, that's just not true. Uh, if you and, and just like with the dispatch piece, if you look at uh, how people are reacting, uh, the truth of the matter is that people are very divided on how they view President Trump and how they view his handling of the crisis. People on the right and uh, traditionally more conservative leaning states uh, are state that they're very happy with Trump. Uh, people who are on the left and in more liberal liberal leaning states uh, are very disappointed and very dissatisfied with how Trump has been handling this crisis. Uh, this data point is one that so many people on Twitter, so many people in the blogosphere, so many of those in the press like to harp on and say, look, it's just more of the traditional divides. These are, you know, these groups are uh, far apart uh, and they're never going to come together. As soon as you say, let's go a little bit deeper here and actually ask what people think, uh, are you, you know, are we in the midst of a serious problem would, do you believe in social distancing? Do you think it was a good idea we shut down international travel? Do you think it was a good idea we shut down stores? Uh, do you think it's a good idea that we've limited or banned uh, large gatherings and events like sporting, uh, you know, uh, arena events or, or, or um, stadium events? Uh, what's remarkable is almost everybody says yes, and it doesn't matter if you're in a traditionally blue area or red area. It doesn't matter if you're extremely liberal or you're incredibly conservative. Um, Americans are sensible. 
Uh, and we need to remember that, uh, you know, there, we can have polarizing figures. We do have polarizing figures. They can exploit these small differences. Uh, they can play on the cult of personality surrounding Donald Trump. But when you take that off the table, we find uh, what I've been finding for over a decade now in my research, which is thoughtful, caring Americans who really want to help each other out and Americans who are not foolish, Americans who want to do the right thing to protect this country. But, but what about the argument? Uh, that throughout American history, the generational change has has come from the extremes, has come from moving from one pole to another. How, how do you how do how do we how do you um, reconcile that with this argument for for a new uh, more centrist con- consensus? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think um, it necessarily. So what I would say is I don't think it requires an overwhelmingly large number of extremists. Uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I may get in trouble here for saying this as well, but if you look at someone like Bernie Sanders, he's been remarkably consequential. He may not have won the nomination for president, but he shifted the Democratic Party. He shifted the narrative. He shifted the priorities. Uh, AOC has been very effective uh, at doing that uh, since she entered Congress, and she's uh, become much more of a centrist player of late. I agree that um, a lot of change comes from the extremes. I don't believe, if you look at the historical record, that it has to be an extreme leftist or right wing person needs to win. They need to shift the dialogue. And I think yes. that's how we reconcile uh, that together. Um, you know, Jeremy, you are a far better uh, person to provide the narrative of how that worked uh, in, in uh, with LBJ and, uh, you know, with civil rights, where, uh, you know, there were people who were on the extreme. They rightfully pulled uh, the country in the direction it needed to, but they didn't take power. Uh, and they didn't dominate power, but they were very powerful and important actors. Uh, and I think that's a very good example of uh, you don't need uh, an extremist to win, but they can and do have incredible uh, potency in shifting the, the narrative discourse. And I think we're seeing that now uh, with people like Bernie Sanders. Right, right. No, I think you're absolutely right, Sam. I think you could argue that figures like William Jennings Bryan, uh, as well as uh, Martin Luther King and others who never actually win office are, are able to actually have perhaps more influence on uh, the political th- temperature of the country than many of those who are in fact elected to office. Right. And if you, if you look at, uh, again, Sanders, I mean, his legislative record is is not particularly great. And uh, there are certain people, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, leaked out that people don't like working with him. Uh, that's right. a, but that's a fair strategy. I want to be very clear. That is an absolutely fair strategy for him to take. He may not be very good in the Senate. He may not be great in terms of building consensus. And that is a strategy. Some people work from within. Uh, some people work from uh, outside. Uh, my colleague at AEI, uh, Yuval Levin, uh, you know, writes quite a bit about this. There are many sure. ways to uh, promote social change. There are many ways to focus and reinvigorate institutions. Some take an inward position, some take an external position. So even if someone like Sanders may not have an incredibly good uh, record in terms of being uh, master of the Senate, uh, the way someone like LBJ may have been, uh, the fact is he shifted public opinion, shifted dialogue and discourse, and laid the groundwork for people like Ocasio-Cortez and others to run. Uh, and that's been incredibly Why is someone, someone, Sam, like like, uh, Bernie Sanders so popular with this emerging millennial group? Sure. So uh, he's popular with certain groups within the millennial community. He's not uniformly popular whatsoever. Uh, In many cases, and I've written quite a bit about this, the millennials' hearts and minds are open. Uh, They want to see someone who's different. They dislike the status quo. They're looking for someone who can speak to them, and they believe represents them 
and uh, you know some of their concerns about equity and mobility. He's been very, very good at that. Uh, one of the things I point out regularly in my research is that money matters in politics, but nowhere near the way it did a decade ago or two or even three decades ago. It is much more affordably affordable and much easier to connect with people in a meaningful way. Bernie has uh, a powerful ground organization of volunteers. These are very active people, uh, and they are genuine. They're the, they are authentic. Uh, and this mirrors uh, what we saw when uh, Barack Obama was actually uh, running. Uh, his ground campaign was phenomenal. It was volunteer. It was voluntary. It was done over text messaging. Uh, I'll never forget uh, when he announced his vice presidential nomination. It was done over text messaging. And I remember he crashed quite a few uh, cell networks uh, doing that. People were so excited. That's a great story. And um, you know, that's this. That's a very similar, you know, sort of dynamic here where. You know, a lot of the parties and a lot of the current political elites um, are out of touch and disconnected from this younger generation. Uh, so I expect to see a lot more uh, consideration paid to these folks. And that means you have to be your authentic self, your genuine self, and you have to work uh, to connect with them. Uh, Sanders has been very, very good at this. But again, it's very important to mention that there are ample numbers of individuals who are younger, who dislike him, who dislike his approach. And dislike those of his, uh, you know, those who are in his field operation. They they find him too aggressive. Uh, this actually was a uh, something that came up in one of the debates, uh, actually, where I believe uh, Senator Warren confronted him for having a sort of uh, unusually aggressive uh, ground campaign. Uh, so I want to point out that he has connected very very well, but uh, I think the data regularly shows that it's not some uniform or monolithically uh, large block. Um, but he certainly does have a lot of. Uh, uh, support among these younger crew. Is this general change as much cultural as it is political? Um, I try not to separate those two concepts, actually. I think it's very hard to do it. I know a lot of people like to do it. Um, so I would say it's it's so deeply coupled and so intertwined, it, it's hard to pull that apart. Um, so I would say, yes, they're, they're, they're deeply connected. Cultural norms influence political norms and, and, and vice versa. There is that feedback loop. Uh, so I don't know what else to say other than I, I think, yes, that's all true. Right. And and I think this comes through in your research as well. I mean, it does seem as if there are differences over the candidate people like, but the kinds of politics they want, which is, a, which is I think, fundamentally what political culture is about. That's where I think you're seeing the emerging consensus, right? People want leaders who are more empathetic, who are more in touch. Um, it, it does seem to me that that's, that's where political culture might be most important right now. Yes. I mean, I, I think if you had a candidate like uh, George H.W. Bush, Many, many years ago, for instance, uh, he famously couldn't tell you uh, how a checkout worked uh, when he needed to go buy milk. He was completely disconnected from that. I don't think that would play very well uh, any, anymore uh, at all. And I, I think a, a sense of normalcy and realism is absolutely critical. Uh, and I think that change really came to a head with someone like Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama would release his playlists, the, the various things he would be listening to. He'd be able to make very uh, powerfully important uh, cultural references uh, across the board. And I, I, I Jeremy I, and, and Zachary, I, I completely agree. Um, we need to have that. You can't be removed anymore. It, it, it used to be, well, you can be a political operative or a political manager, but you don't necessarily need to be part of the cultural zeitgeist. You're above that or it's an unnecessary facet of, of, of being a, a good leader. I don't think that's possible today because I think they're so tightly coupled. You need to be able to, to know. Now, of course, the, the downside to that is do you really need to pay attention to 
on TikTok and celebrities on TikTok and Twitter. Um, you know, I learned quite a bit about this uh, from my uh, freshman class or my yes. freshman studies class. Uh, I, I, I hope I don't need to pay that much attention down the road to people doing dance routines for 30 seconds. Uh, they are fun to watch. But uh, finding that balance and that right balance is, is, is going to be key. Uh, but, you know, as I, I say to lots of folks, this is a brave new world. Things move yeah. so quickly with technology. Um, the rules are so fluid. Uh, I, I used to say we in political science had some rules. We understood the impact of certain technologies. We understood campaign effects. We could predict things reasonably well, or at least explain them if we couldn't predict them, but explain dynamics with some sense of regularity. Um, the world has shifted so rapidly and the technology has changed so quickly in such a meaningful way that, you know, uh, you know we don't have uh, a great sense of this. Uh, and we can speculate, and a lot of us do, but uh, something kind of fun to do is next time you clean out uh, your, your office or closet, wherever you have old magazines, uh, I, I was cleaning out my old foreign policies and my old foreign affairs. And there are these articles from five years ago that talk about these great technology shifts and how that's going to impact the way we communicate or do business or associate. And none of that ever happened. Uh, but uh, we keep writing about it. So, you know, it's hard for me to speculate, but I, I think this is tightly coupled and there's no way we want to s- try to pull this stuff apart. It's just right. too difficult. Right, right. And, and, and certainly the COVID crisis brings that out in every way, it seems, both the in, intersection of politics and culture and also the importance of technology. I mean, as, as we're doing this podcast, not in the studio, but through, right, through, through new technology. Exactly. And, and, you know, we talk about, uh, and, you know, my social media feeds, which I try to limit, are filled with, uh, you know, comments about Zoom. Uh, half of them are negative. You know, they're, they're draining. You have to pay attention right. to how you look. And people are judging you based on how nice the background is, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, I, I just had the pleasure of, um, well, actually, I would just say, thanks to Zoom, I was able to invite guests who I normally would not be able to bring to my course uh, from a variety of perspectives. Right. Uh, I had uh, a number of folks who were very, very religious, which my students have never had the chance to necessarily hear from. Uh, I had uh, scholars and, and leading thinkers from the right and the left speak in a way that normally wouldn't happen. And, and that's been a way to connect in, in some remarkable ways. And uh, my, my family is Jewish. We did a Zoom Seder. Uh, objectively, it was horrible. Uh, yes. But, uh, you know, we all talked over each other. And kids were crying. Nothing really happened. But when, when we were all done, I, I, I shut the computer and stepped back and said, what a magical evening. Because there are 20 different households staring at a little black box trying to connect in a, in a spiritual way. And it was spiritual. Uh, so, you know, again, this stuff really matters. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm concerned, actually, on, on that front that, uh, you know, Joe Biden is not connecting very well and not uh, connecting well enough at all, considering uh, the technology we have. Uh, Trump is a master of this. And I, I incidentally worry about how that's going to play out for uh, mobilization and uh, election efforts in a, in a right Right, right. It sounds like your seder was a little bit similar to ours, except in ours we we had multiple households on, and there was a moment where we were all watching each other eat. Uh, <laughs> uh, we didn't even get to the eating together. It was more of a twenty-minute uh, mess, and uh, and it, 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 it's something I will never forget. And I'm actually very grateful it happened. But yeah, uh, you know, the, the, you know, we have some actual data on this. One of the things to note is that um, for those people who had meaningful social relationships face to face or or even over the phone they you know they were deep regular social intimates 
um, one of the things that we've been able to, to capture is that we know that even with the isolation measures, even with the lockdowns, even with the stop uh, work at home, you know, the work at home orders, uh, those individuals have actually been able to maintain uh, fairly balanced social lives since this has happened. Uh, unfortunately, on the flip side, for those who were isolated pre-COVID, uh, for better or for worse, uh, unfortunately, the technology has not increased uh, their connectivity. It, it's it's only hampered it. Um, right. So one piece of advice I I make to people is, uh, since I wrote a piece about picking up the phone, uh, people are often uncomfortable looking at each other uh, through an intermediary. Uh, but pick up the phone, call a friend, call a, a grandparent, call a cousin, call someone. Uh, you know, that technology is very intimate uh, to hear someone right. in your ear. And uh, that seems to be working in terms of uh, bridging and bonding connections in, in this uh, pandemic. Well, this would seem to echo what we talked about in a prior episode on uh, education uh, during this crisis, that that children who are well-connected to educational environments tend to stay well-connected even in an online framework, uh, whereas those who aren't, it, it, it multiplies the difficulties that they have. And, and that's well, one, what we're One thing I want to, and, and I certainly agree with that, one thing I, I, I want to note, though, and I think that's fairly important, is that you know a lot of people are, are and, and rightfully so, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, are, are saying that, you know, digital divides exist. And, and, and in particular, when we think about education, folks of um, less uh, substantial means are going to struggle. It's, they're going to har- be harmed in, in greater detail than uh, in rather in, in, in greater amounts than those who have, uh, you know, fast connective Wi-Fi, who have new computers. I, I certainly agree with that. But, uh, you know, cell phone coverage and access to just phones uh, is almost universal. Uh, so there are still ways to connect. Yes. I'm not saying in an educational learning environment. I want to be very clear that those considerations for inequalities matter. But I still believe if you look at the the, the density of, of the phone networks, that we all have the capacity or almost all of us have the capacity to connect today. Right. And that's an important distinction to make. And, and I think this leads to, to our final question, which is always where we like to close uh, for our listeners, protect, particularly for listeners who are millennials and Gen Z. Uh, what can they do if they believe in helping to forge this um, consensus, this new American consensus, a consensus that's, that's somewhere in the middle where it usually is uh, around social justice, uh, around um, caring leadership, around a, an effective foreign policy, uh, what should they do? What, what, what should they be doing right now to help push this process along? So many, many, many things. Uh, one, which sounds awfully trite, is be nice, as strange as that sounds. Uh, you know, sometimes I, uh, when, pe- when I uh, tweet something out, and I try not to do it too much, but tweet out a new article, I, I get some pretty horrific responses uh, and, and, and just pretty mean responses. And often I'll yeah. direct message people and say, um, I'm happy to talk to you about it, but was this a productive comment? You know, just saying you're a fool. Okay, well, let's talk about it. I'm I'm happy to do it. Uh, they rarely write back, but I, I try, for instance, in my social media to be uh, very positive, and 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 I don't try to go negative. Uh, you know, empirically, going negative is a very effective way to get noticed. Uh, going negative is a way to generate a lot of attention, but it again doesn't build people to you know, build and bring people together. So be nice and don't go negative if you can avoid it. Uh, I would also say avoid that negativity. Limit your exposure to social media because uh, the more you do it, uh, the more lonely you become and, and the more insecure you become. And, and that's where some of uh, that willingness to lash out occurs. 
But there's some other concrete uh, steps that we can all take that don't involve money. I want to be clear, this isn't, isn't one of those cases where you need to be a billionaire to run uh, something. There have been plenty of uh, political candidates who have been very effective at winning office without uh, large sums of money, and uh, AOC is another example of that. Um, and what you can do is you can start doing more research and presenting more reason online. You could connect with your neighbors. You can pick up the phone and call your neighbors. You can call your friends. You can call your family. You can make sure people are registered to vote uh, as many elections may be going, um, you know, not necessarily online, but on online via the mail, if you will. Uh, we can make sure that our neighbors actually cast a ballot. We can make sure they actually do that. We can talk about politics in a constructive way. We can be open and be willing to engage people we disagree with. We can help try to find candidates that are interested in running. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we see in political science and we see in the public policy world is that a lot of people have just turned away from this. Uh, some of my own research has shown that the, the negativity has turned a lot of millennials away. Uh, well, if we see people who are well-situated charismatically, culturally, intellectually, dispositionally to run for office, why not try to rally behind them and help them and their, uh, you know, and, and help them find their voice and encourage them to speak uh, and to get more involved, to get more involved in our communities. Um, all of these little steps are, are doable. They don't require a lot of uh, resources other than time. Uh, we have a lot of time. Uh, we've spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time looking at time diaries. It's a it's a wonderful way to see what Americans are doing. And leisure time and, and, and free time has actually increased significantly over the, over the years. Um, but it is find the time to engage. We can be positive. We can support candidates we like. We can support people who have the discourse we like. And, and rather than attack people we may find objectionable or put people down, we can address them in a productive and civil way, uh, in person, over the phone, in neighborhoods, uh, and even online. So I actually think it, it's, it's a phenomenal question you ask, and it's, it's, it's a very different type of answer that I would have, today that I'd give, that I would have given when I was finishing up my undergraduate studies, heading off to graduate school. It was all about money, and I would have said it was all about the power elite and the power bosses. I mean, that's what we, that I believe was very much true. You had a set of individuals whose uh, hearts and minds you needed to connect with. These people had a lot of sway. You had to win them over. You had to build coalitions. Uh, we still need to build coalitions. That's very important. Uh, I do like the idea that on occasion extremism is important for shifting the dialogue, but then coalition building and bringing people into the big tent still matters to win elections and to be effective. And I think that uh, Joe Biden showed that by winning the nominee. He didn't have to say much. He can let the extremes sort of uh, pitter out on their own. He may be doing that with uh, Trump as we speak. But, um, you know, the, the tactics we can take, the way we can communicate today, uh, this is, you know, very different. Uh, we don't need the money, but we need the time, the interest, the compassion, the empathy, uh, the love, if you will, to support each other to to push this forward. And, um, you know, I, I, I have the pleasure of, of working with many, many students, uh, whether it's at my home institution or when I travel. And this is an idea that resonates with everybody. This is not a Republican thing or, um, you know, a, a Democratic thing. It's not a liberal thing. It's not a conservative thing. It's this group of people wants pragmatic solutions that bring people together. Uh, people on the left and right all believe in social justice. It's just a matter of how we get there. I want to be very clear about that. Um, there are some who would like to hijack the narrative, of course, uh, into and make it an extremist one. But uh, most millennials and Gen Zers that uh, I talk to want everyone to have a fair shot and then uh, you know have a chance at upward mobility in the American dream. Uh, and 
the ways to achieve it and the ways to affect change are different than 20 years ago. And it involves time and a voice and compassion and empathy, not money. And that's a very big change that I think we all welcome. That that's a very powerful statement. It brings together your research so well, and it, it it also showcases what I find so so impressive about your work, Sam. How you connect uh, rigorous social science with very pragmatic uh, ideas about political change. Zachary, does this resonate for Gen Zers like you? Do you do you see yourself devoting the time and uh, making the effort at being nice and connecting in this way? I think so. I definitely think that we're 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 moving towards a, a generational consensus, and I think that that Gen Z is going to be a part of that. And and I also think that that what really resonated with me in particular was was the power of extremes and how by by taking extreme positions and by encouraging different voices to be heard, we can move towards uh, the right direction without having to move uh, perfectly towards like an extremist. Pole or something like that. And so how those new ideas can actually then become the basis for bringing people together in more of a big tent as well. Exactly. Well, thank you, Zachary. And thank you, Sam. I, I, I hope everyone will read uh, Sam's research. We're, we're showcasing some of it, of course, with the podcast here. Uh, I think it's so important that we don't simply judge our society by the loudmouths who are most commonly uh, quoted and seen on television, but actually look deeper, as, as Sam is, to the emerging attitudes and changing sociological structure of our society. And thank you, Zachary, for your poem. A phenomenal poem. Totally phenomenal, as usual. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.